fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Dennett. Great to be here, Dan, as always. I'm so excited about this episode. I love it when I go back, watch a movie that I forgot how much I loved. I'm very excited for this movie. Thanks for having us watch it again. You got it, Dan, but hold on a second. How could you forget how much you love this movie? This is one of the greatest films of all time. Definitely one of the greatest science films of all time. How could you forget it, Dan? You know, I think, Dan, it's probably just that I'm getting old. as my only explanation at the moment. Well, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, you're not quite a fossil, but fossil, if you were a fossil, they do have quite a big role in this movie and possibly for future generations, but you're not quite there yet. But if you were, I got the perfect guy to dig you up. And that is our enigmatic engineer, Ben Seepser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? This week, I'm off the coast of Isla Nublar, and there appear to be formerly extinct megafauna roaming the island. Formerly extinct megafauna. I love those types of things, although it could possibly be dangerous. So be careful out there. Um, but this is, you know, we're talking about Jurassic Park as we continue our Spielberg spring. And this is a movie about a billionaire who funds a project that's designed to bring dinosaurs back to life in order to populate and display and put on display in a commercialized park, Disneyland style, although dangerous and possibly life threatening. Now, I, I love this movie, Denon. I know you like it because the lead character has a, a hat that's very similar to yours. But Ben, I think you like it because of the dinosaurs. And before we get right into this, I got to tell you something about dinosaurs that I loved as a kid, and that is the Kool-Aid flavor Purple Saurus Rex. I think people out there who've ever had it, you know it's the greatest Kool-Aid flavor of all time. But, you know, if you don't remember it, it's available now in retro form as of January in 2020 last year. I said go out and get some. Uh, now, this came out way before the movie. Kool-Aid, as always, is way ahead of the curve. And the flavor, it was gr- it was great. I almost said purple, which isn't a flavor. It's grape and lemonade. It is the greatest Kool-Aid of all time. Denon, does that sound appetizing to you? Well, it certainly sounds appetizing, Dan, but I'm pretty sure I never had it. And if I did, I forgot. I just remember loving cherry Kool-Aid um, or as you would say, red Kool-Aid um, with that as a flavor. <laughs> and so that was just where I'm at with that. I also love the Kool-Aid commercials with Kool-Aid smashing through a wall And wall smashing, you know, a little foreshadowing here, that's going to be our next Spielberg episode. But I don't want to reveal too much at this point, except I love wall smashing. Oh, yeah. I'll come smashing in with the Kool-Aid ready to the life of the party there, baby. Now, yeah, it's true. I didn't know that was was, uh, cherry flavor. That's that's brand new to me. I learned something on every episode. So thank you for that, Denon. Now, Ben, what about you? You seem like you like Kool-Aid, or at least you would love the fact that each packet of Kool-Aid, the fossilized remains, will probably exist well into the future and be found by our descendants two billion years from now what did you did you like that part of kool-aid you know i didn't have much experience with kool-aid i think in camp we would have what we would call bug juice but that was the red stuff uh not i don't remember ever getting purple uh drink 
but I really loved the uh, the dinosaur shaped fruit snacks as a kid. Those were those were my jam. <laughs> those and they're probably made partly of jam as well. But I'm glad you had red flavored and not purple flavored uh, bug juice. That's a that's a great name. Well, you know, I, the, one of the things as rewatching this movie that I really loved about it is it's really the, the not only does the technology of the movie hold up, but also the philosophy, the morals, the ethics that they talk about just in deciding on whether or not they should use this technology to bring dinosaurs back to life. And I'm gonna put my shameless plug here right at the beginning guys for fascinating nouns i just did an episode with a woman named jenny kleeman on a book called sex robots and vegan meat where we talk about how we use tech humans when i say we i mean humans use technology to make their lives easier but when they find these small little inconveniences that the technology doesn't completely cover they then invent new technology to fill in those gaps and just create really what is essentially a dystopian society at the end of all this that's a great episode i loved it but speaking of dystopian societies you know when we look at the end of Jurassic Park, no one can think that that is a shiny, happy way to end it. And it all starts with technology and technology always starts with philosophy. And as we see in this movie, we've got, you know, Dr. Hammond, who runs the park, is trying to really create an argument on why Jurassic Park should exist. So he has a bunch of scientists come to give their arguments for or against the park, really for. Um, and one of those is Dr. Ian Malcolm, our chaos theorist, who has some of the best quotes in the movie, and I think it's a great way to set up this first part when we talk about the philosophy. So here is the first quote of Dr. Ian Malcolm. You've heard of chaos theory, nonlinear equations, strange attractors. Dr. Sattler, I refuse to believe that you are not familiar with the concept of attraction. Now, obviously, that second part is a double entendre. He's referring to human sexual attraction, which we covered in our Love Potion number nine episode. You gotta go watch that. But what about these strange attractors? Now, I'm familiar with strange attraction, but I don't think that's what they're talking about. But luckily, we've got our own chaos theorist, Dr. Michael Denon. Can you tell us a little bit about chaos theory and what is a strange attractor? Well, Dan, as people know, I study foams, but what they may not know is I started my career studying nonlinear systems and nonlinear equations, the first part that Malcolm mentions about chaos theory. Many people are familiar with chaos theory being about things being unpredictable, but as you pointed out, they may not know why strange attractors are strange. And it really comes down to the following, and my new hobby from the pandemic of archery is a great example of this. An attractor, it means kind of like the system always goes to the same point. So if I'm shooting my arrows and I'm on target and I make a nice tight cluster, that's because if I make small changes in the initial condition, it doesn't affect things much. The arrow just moves a little bit to the side and they all land in the same point. A strange attractor means there's still a general space that they're all gonna hit, but they're gonna hit it in a random way. So if I move the arrow a little to the right, it might suddenly end in the lower left corner. If I move it a little up, it might end up you know, to the upper right corner, who knows? And at the end, the arrows fill space in a very strange way. That's why we call it a strange attractor. Now, total chaos, total random unpredictableness means those arrows are going everywhere. You move your bow just a little bit and maybe the arrow goes behind you suddenly or it hits that poor person to the right of you. Real total chaos at the archery range is really dangerous. But strange attractors are somewhat safe because you're always hitting the general target just in a strange way, Dan. That's the core of strange attractors. Well, I would say if you have chaos that exists in your bow, in your arrow shooting, it will definitely cause chaos as you hit and strike innocent bystanders with your arrows. Uh, that sounds dangerous, although very similar to Jurassic Park, Dennett. So what a, what a great story. Chaos theory is being used as a tool to 
to predict unpredictability in a system. Now, I can say that there are lots of initial conditions that make this unpredictable, but Ben, I gotta think that as, as an engineer, it's your job to, to make sure that a system can handle all of these strange occurrences, be them strange attractors or not, correct? That's exactly right. Uh, engineering is all about uh, taking this unpredictability and random failures and building an entire system that can tolerate uh, any one failure. So if you think about the fencing, you, you can expect that the power will fail at some point in the life of a park on a tropical island in the ocean. There's hurricanes there. So you're, you would expect that the power would go out on occasion. So if the power being on is your only thing keeping your dinosaurs in their, in their pens, then you have designed a bad system. And so you need to uh, build tiers of security. You need to have uh, high walls. You need to have comp climb proof walls. You need to have moats. You need to have berms. You need to have all these different physical uh, protections and not just flimsy wires that need to be powered in order to keep the dinos contained. You know, and what that goes to, Dan, the math goes a little farther than that. And the math helps you here, right? This is really a core math problem about predicting from the math, are you going to go to a strange attractor and how big will it be? And in the dinosaur case, you want your math to lead to strange attractors that are the size of the pen. You don't want those animals getting out of their enclosure. You could end up with a strange attractor the side of the island. That might lead to problems. I don't know. You definitely don't want this randomness going beyond the island. Those are kind of your three levels you're looking at from the math. Okay, that makes sense. Now, when I hear this, you know, I'm a kind of I'm on the side of Ian Malcolm here because I really think that chaos theory, at least as I understand it, does actually predict the downfall of the island. Because as you mentioned, the strange attractors, you got dinosaurs on the island. Well, that doesn't mean that they're in a safe place. If you've got a T-Rex next to a human being, whether the T-Rex is hungry or not, I'm guessing the human is probably going to be in trouble. And then that is instant chaos, not chaos theory, but chaos as you shooting penitent bystanders with your arrows, Denon. That's the kind of chaos I'm talking about here. Now, I and I think that this really, it's set up to do that. You've got, you know, it's in the middle, as you mentioned, Ben, it's in the middle of, of the tropical climate. you got hurricanes. Some would call them typhoons. All kinds of weather patterns. You know, you can't predict Nedry, who I think really, if we're talking about chaos theory, he's unpredictable because, as we talked about, initial conditions matter. Right, Denon? So, initial conditions of the park. How do we set it up? Who's the personnel? What are the personnel that we're hiring? What, con what construction people are we using? And and I think Nedry was hired because he underbid. They're paying him less than what he believes that he should be paid, which just even though that was his decision, what you've done now, because you have underbid him, you've created a person who wants to get more money. So he undermines the island completely. I don't know if a system can absorb that kind of unpredictability, the unpredictability of human nature. And I think this the downfall of this island lays right at his feet. And I don't think Nedry is predictable by an equation. Do you agree with that? Not exactly, Dan. There, there's a there's a type of fault tolerance uh, study called Byzantine fault analysis, where part of your system is, is assuming unreliability in the system, assuming even maybe maliciousness in the system. And you need to anticipate stuff like that. You need to anticipate that an employee may do something wrong, like try to let an animal out. Uh, and you need to have a system that can handle things like somebody opening a gate they shouldn't be opening, somebody turning off power when they shouldn't be, somebody filling in a moat with a, uh, 
with a, an excavator accident. You know, there's all of these random things that could happen to undermine the security of the park. And you need to, as a system, be able to absorb those failures um, and maintain integrity. I really like what Ben was saying here, Dan, because, yes, it's about initial conditions. I'm with you on that. That's what chaos theory is a lot about. But the unpredictability part is where I think the engineering side of the math comes in. You think about the possible initial conditions and you engineer design to get to that strange attractor you want of dinosaurs in their pen and not people in the pen. You raised an interesting point there, Dan. The dinosaurs could get out and be with the people. I'm suddenly also worried about the people getting in with the dinosaurs. So you got to include that in your mathematical equations. Well, I think that that's exactly right. And I will tell you, that's a great way, Dan, because, you know, one of the other great quotes that Nian has is, life finds a way. And, you know, I think part of this is that both humans and dinosaurs are biological creatures that make decisions. This, these are and human decisions, as we all know. God knows I've made some unpredictable decisions. An equation is not going to give you the answers that you need. And I think that life, be it human, be it dinosaur, is going to find a way out of that system, out of that pen, no matter what. What do you think about that, Denon? Well, you know, this is where, unfortunately, Dan, I'm going to have to disagree with you a bit on this. Yeah, I love the quote. You're right. Malcolm says, nature finds a way, life finds a way. But, you know, equations also, they don't lie. You know, they're not like statistics, if you remember that quote. And so if you design it right, you're going to actually keep things where you need them to be. So it can try and find a way. Um, and yes, it's unpredictable, but I think we can still keep things in their cages. That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to stick by that for now. Well, I think you disagree with me at your own peril, Den, and we may find out who is right or wrong at the end of this conversation. Because, you know, when I look at life, here's a perfect example of how life finds a way. I'm going to put this article up on the website. It's a great article about how life, life as we know it, is inevitable by the way our physics works. And so basically what that's saying, I've mentioned Dr. Sidney Fox in one of our other episodes, but that the way our current physical conditions work is that the, when the right chemicals get together, when, when the right conditions, life will life will be created. And I think it doesn't just end there. I mean, I think, you know, there are lots of safeguards that they put into place on this island, including lysine, including, um, you know, using frog DNA that is designed to keep the dinosaurs in check, which include walls, which include, you know, all, the pens that they're in, the, the electricity, all of that, they seem to find a way out. What do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and But you also have to think about nature, like the lysine contingency, which they mentioned, where they're going to stop giving the animals lysine. Lysine is abundant in nature. We humans, we can't synthesize lysine. We have to get it from our diets. But lysine is in fish. It's in beans. It's in all this stuff. Like the dinosaurs are going to figure out uh, that if they just eat some uh, fish, they're going to be fine. Uh, they'll figure that out. Nature found a way, just like we found a way as humans back in in uh, the prehistoric times, where we figured out that if we ate fish or we ate beans, we didn't die of lysine deficiency. Though I do have to say, Ben, very good point. And Dan, I'm kind of with you a little bit, but I think you all are overestimating the intelligence of other humans, not the humans in the show, like people who know how to design zoos. I'm going back to that. You have the equations for a good zoo, and then you have the equations for Jurassic Park, bad zoo. So I think this is all about human error and not nature finding a way. Now, you might argue we humans always make mistakes, but I'm, I'm an optimist, Dan, as you know, and I think humans can overcome these, these, these hurdles and barriers, but I'm probably wrong. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's clear evidence that Hammond, when Hammond's always saying we spared no expense, 
But I think he spared no expense when it came to the flashy whiz-bang features that the that uh, the visitors see, which is his point of view. But he never thought to hire, you know, the guy who makes uh, safari parks that keep lines in um, and ask him uh, how to make a pen to keep a T-Rex in. You know, y- you have to get the right people uh, for all aspects of your park, not just the people who make a great user experience. And I will say, you know, and I completely agree with that. You mentioned that he spared no expense. Nedry was an expense that he spared, which created the downfall of the island. You know, that is my ultimate argument here. Um, you know, and and some of my favorite quotes, obviously longtime listeners will know that my current favorite quote of Ben is whiz bang features. But if we're looking at Ian Malcolm, some of my other favorite quotes here as we move on, um, you know, so obsessed with seeing that if you could you didn't stop to think if you should. I think that that is also very relevant here. Um, you know, God help us from the hands of engineers. I think, Denon, you're with me on this one. And one that is mo- most personally resonates with me, God, I hate being right all the time. Uh, you know, and, and Denon, as I mentioned, you would disagree with me at your own peril. But, you know, when it comes to the dinosaur island, if you're going to create your own dinosaur island in this movie, what is the thing that you need? You need some DNA. How do you get that? Mosquitoes in amber. I went down a rabbit hole. So everyone listening, I got to tell you, amber is one of the coolest natural fossilizing substances on earth. It is amazing. Uh, One of the quotes from this thing is, the resins frankincense-like gas evaporated, its molecules linked into polymers and hardened into what we now call amber. I love this quote because what it says is tree sap collects all of this stuff, whether it's seeds, pollen, um, spores, insects, sometimes lizards. It collects them all and then hardens them over time into an almost plastic-like resin container. And those containers contain a snapshot of a very specific point in time in history, uh, including the flora, the fauna, everything that's going on there. I love Amber now, guys. Um, And this stuff is really cool. Ben, what do you think about Amber? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, amber is a really great preservative of the natural world. world. Uh, you know, we we hear about Dr. Grant, who's a, a paleontologist, but we also have Dr. Sattler, who's a paleobotanist, someone who studies uh, the ancient and extinct plants. And amber is just this amazing thing. You mentioned that there's pollen, that there's seeds, there's all this great stuff in amber. And you know, bringing dinosaurs into the future isn't just about getting the dinosaurs. It's about getting their entire ecosystem. It's about figuring out what trees were around then, what ferns were around then, what flowers, what grasses, and all this stuff. Um, And if you're missing that, you're not really recreating those correct initial conditions. You're creating a world that the dinosaurs wouldn't be familiar with. I, I love that idea, Ben, of creating a world. But I have to say, Dan, what fascinated me, and, and you described it so well, and this is another reason I loved this movie but forgot I loved it, is how often do you get to have a cool video on material science in the middle of a movie on dinosaurs? Everybody thinks dinosaurs is the coolest science, but we know material science, the study of foams, the study of other materials is clearly far superior. And so to get a whole video on material science in the middle of a movie on dinosaurs, I think that was a win for us material scientists. I just want to chalk it up in the win column. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I will tell you, you know, you mentioned uh, the paleobotanist, Ben. Uh, one of the cool things about amber is that because it does have that snapshot, you know, we see them re-landscape the entire island using paleo plants. They must have gotten them from the seeds. You know, they must have somehow used this amber to collect all of that stuff as well. Otherwise, where are you getting extinct plants from? Um, I love that. And I think the material science does have a major part in that. I'm going to put this great article on the website for amber so that none of you guys will, will be, you'll be in the know. And I think you all will turn around on amber as well. Um, now, so let's talk about dinosaur creation, because now that we've got this amber, we've got the, the want to create a park. We've got the amber. How do we create the dinosaurs? Now, I want to go on record and say that I'm anti-zoo, so I'm against all of this. I'm against, you know, de-extinction, resurrecting extinct species. But we're going to go ahead as if we want to do this. Um, so let's talk about cloning dinos. You got the DNA. Uh, I don't know if this exists. I don't know if mosquitoes existed back then. Ben, I know you've got some information on whether on the accuracies of that particular point. Yeah, so there's two things. So first, we'll address the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes did exist back then, but not in the Jurassic. Uh, mosquitoes uh, came around midway through the Cretaceous period, somewhere between 80 and 100 million years ago. So it's totally plausible that we get uh, T-Rex blood, raptor blood, triceratops blood, parasaurolophus blood, gallimimus blood, uh, from mosquitoes, but not the actual Jurassic animals in the movie, the Dilophosaurus and the Brachiosaurus. Uh, they they would have had to be, come from some other maybe blood-sucking insect that isn't a mosquito uh, that was around at the time. So I'm just loving the idea of a blood-sucking insect, not a mosquito. I'm now getting nervous because I picture everything is really big back then. Um, so I don't know if it would fit in amber, but the thought of a huge blood-sucking insect is now scaring me. Um, which usually happens in our episodes when we watch things. I, I get scared, so there you go. Um, but I am wondering, Ben, how, how, how do they, does the DNA really exist? You're the engineer and the design person. How do we go with that? Yeah, well, first of all, I will say insects were a lot bigger back then. Uh, th there was more oxygen, and so uh, animals that had exoskeletons like uh, insects could grow larger because they could absorb more oxygen uh, through their rudimentary respiration systems. So that's another fun thing about <laughs> the prehistoric times. Uh, but yeah, so the problem with the DNA is the DNA only has a, a half-life of about 520 years. So by the time you get to about 7 million years, there's really, statistically speaking, there's nothing really left of the, of the DNA, of preserved DNA at that point. So it would be very, very difficult to resurrect a dinosaur because you it would be you would just need so many samples of the DNA to maybe you could re reconstruct this uh, genome again from lots and lots of samples, but it would be really difficult. This is why we have modern uh, modern efforts to say resurrect a woolly mammoth or a saber toothed cat or dire wolves or all these other uh, mammals that existed tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago because the, the DNA we find in those fossils is still pretty intact, unlike the dino DNA where we find traces of amino acids, but it's not even really clear if uh, it's the actual dino DNA or if it's just some contaminant from the digging up of the fossil. Well, I think that's, you know, that's an interesting point because DNA is the, the key here. And if it disintegrates, well, what do we do? You know, and, and I think we have to ask the question, is there another way to create these dinosaurs without using DNA? 
Um, and I, I, you know, I think that's really the question. If, if it doesn't exist and we can't really create it, how do we do it then? And I, I feel like you, you, you might be able to crack this one. Well, this is one where I really go back to our Flintstone episode, Dan. So people should go watch that and my predictions in that episode. I think we computer simulate design and reverse engineer. So we know a lot about the morphology of dinosaurs, and we know that DNA overall is very similar in many creatures. It's really about the genes that are being you know, expressed and how that works. And computing power is getting better and better all the time. And I think we model the dinosaurs we want. And this helps a lot because... Yeah, it would be nice to create what actual dinosaurs are, but really you just want the coolness of the dinosaur. And so we could create the dinosaurs we want with our sort of modeling and studying and prediction. And I, I think that's the route to go. Sort of forward reverse engineering, design your own dino instead of trying to recreate a dino of the past. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We know that all living things on this planet have DNA and it's the same basic code and genes throughout the entire ecosystem. So it, you know, as we get more and more comfortable and knowledgeable about how DNA works and how the, the genome code works, it's totally within the realm of possibility that we as humans will figure out how to match the phenotype of the dinosaur, what the dinosaur looks like, how, it, how we think it would act, um, but not have to actually get an exact copy of that DNA. There's a lot of examples in nature of animals that have filled the same niche and have very similar uh, body structures for doing the same, eating the same ways or eating the same things. But underneath their DNA is totally different because they had uh, because they they evolved separately to get to that same spot. No, I think that that's great. I mean, convergent evolution is one of the coolest things, I think, in nature. And I think you're exactly right. There's essentially a million different ways to arrive at the same thing, be it ear size or, you know, eye size that, you know, does the same thing coded differently in the genes. So I'm with you guys on that. But one of the things that I think that that is hard to predict is you may not get a period-specific dinosaur, which probably doesn't matter to anybody, but it's interesting as a conversation because dinosocial behavior is a lot we don't know, right? I mean, the raptors, they use flanking techniques in this. You know, when you talk about raising a, you know, raising a dinosaur up, you know, we see Hammond kind of pulling the, the eggs off of them and he wants to be the first person that he's imprinted on them as he's their, you know, as he's their father figure, which is ridiculous because you don't just sit on a dinosaur egg and then it hatches and then it knows what to do. You need the parents teaching it what to do, you know, and the California condor preservation, they crack the code of, of saving condors by using puppets to rear the young, you know, condor chicks. And I don't know that a fluffy puppet, uh, what made by Jim Henson company or not, I don't think that's what's going to raise a velociraptor up to become a velociraptor. So these are the tricky things. Again, this may only matter to me, but I do find them interesting coding them into the genetic code to get that phenotype that you want. Right, Dan? Well, I think, Dan, what you're missing here is what type of raptor do you want? And you're right. If I want a vicious hunting raptor, I may need a different imprinting. But think about the difference between wolves and dogs, right? We as humans basically got dogs to imprint with us and domesticated them. And I know you're a dog person, Dan. I know you love your dogs. And I'm just thinking the equivalent here, we make raptor pets this way, right? Much safer. And we don't have to worry about some of the problems they had on Jurassic Park because they made like wild raptors, but we can make domesticated raptors and then raise them. They won't be fluffy necessarily, and that's okay, but they'll, they'll be friendly pets. 
<laughs> Is it okay? I think we should have fluffy pets, by the way. And I love this idea of making Dino. <laughs> I do love that. Well, I mean, I'd argue that the raptor should be fluffy. They should be totally covered in feathers and be very fluffy. But that's, that's a separate argument. But I think going back to this nurture versus nature thing, uh, we know that there's probably, there's good evidence that, you know, we see in the natural world that some animals do care for their young, right? Birds bring back food for their, their uh, young offspring. And we, we, I think it's reasonable to expect that a theropod, like say a T-Rex or a raptor, they probably brought back food for their, uh, their offspring um, in the nest because it would be very difficult for a little baby raptor to hunt when it's first born. However, uh, we know that, we also know that some of the bigger, the megafauna, like the sauropods, uh, they, they probably bred more like turtles, where turtles just lay a bunch of eggs and peace out, and the baby turtles are on their own, and it's just kind of hardwired into them to, you know, wander to where they need to go to find food. Um, I think it's quite likely that, uh, you could engineer your dinosaurs to not need these puppets and things and just kind of know what to do um, rather than ha- needing to be hand-fed by a mama raptor. <laughs> well, I mean, I love that. And I think that that does solve a lot of these problems with how do you create dinosaurs that would fit in a park, which then, you know, with our chaos theory before, maybe if we make some more docile dinosaurs, maybe that was a way to keep them inside. But you know, when we're looking at the, the, the park itself, or we're going back to the park, how do we how do we figure this park out? I think, the, you know, obviously in this movie, the, the real star of the movie is the T-Rex. And there's some pretty cool things about the T-Rex. Containing them is the key, whether it's through genetics or through the wiring. But, I, you know, I, I saw a couple of articles that I, we've got to talk about here because the T-Rex is a really amazing, high, heavily studied animal. And this article just came out talking about how many T-Rexes there were in the world. And according to this thing, there were about 20,000 T-Rexes at a time in North America. Now, equally spread, that's about 400 T-Rexes per state. I know it's not equally spread out. It's not a strange attractor. Am I using that right, Denon? Very good, Dan. I like that. I, <laughs> all right. It's pretty spread out. It's pretty small. And, you know, I also, there's another great article about how fast these things ran. You know, we see, you know, there's a famous scene where a raptor's chasing after this car. You know, objects may appear closer than they appear as the dinosaur's mouth fills the entire, the, the entire window there but apparently they only walked maybe about three miles per hour ran at about 17 and it's interesting they figured out how fast it ran based on the frequency of the tail movement the resonance of the tail i thought this was a pretty cool way to figure that out it's probably pretty accurate and i know ben you like the t-rex and this is not where your interest in t-rex begins or ends well that 17 miles per hour though does give me a bit of a scare because that's certainly fast enough to catch me uh, you know, that T-Rex isn't going to catch the Jeep, uh, but he certainly would catch me on foot. So, I, you know, I got to work on my running, I guess, uh, get up to those Olympic uh, sprinting speeds if I want to <laughs> run away from the T-Rex. But I think it's also important to think about, you know, how much, what did these eat? You know, you talk about these T-Rexes, you know, 20,000 in North America at a time. You know, how much did they eat? Would that go, you know, would the T-Rex have even been hungry? Why is he chasing them? Uh, you know, you know, if you do the calculations based on how much a T-Rex weighed, they probably only needed to eat, you know, a couple goats a day, if that, maybe just one, to really sate their hunger. So, you know, I could imagine them going for Gennaro on the toilet because he's not running. That's an easy meal. 
Uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to expend much energy to get that one. But you know, chasing down a, a jeep that you know is fast, you know, a predator is probably not going to do try to chase something it knows it can't run down. You know, and and something else, Ben, in that regard. And Dan, you mentioned you know these cool articles coming about T Rexes, how fast they go, how many. I saw something that I have to follow up on. I haven't had time. But there's thoughts that the T-Rexes might not actually have been a hunter. They might have been a scavenger and just eat, eaten dead things, right? Which is a total change, right, of view of the T-Rex, but explains its really small arms. Um, and so <laughs> I, I got to go into this more. I know you're the analytical mastermind. Maybe you can solve it for us, whether that's true. But I was thinking about that. You know, if they're really just scavengers, then all you need to do is put up a dead goat. And this whole issue about whether they want to hunt or not really like just totally changes the movie. Um, But, you know, it doesn't make it nearly as exciting because they won't care about the Jeep, except maybe what the Jeep runs over. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, it's it's a it's a fascinating thing to think about because they do have that large mouth. And, you know, with a large mouth full of teeth, I'm just going to look at the shark, for example. No one would come and say that the shark was a predator because that mouth is its main attack point. It's its main weapon. So I would find it hard to believe, although I'm not a scientist, although I'll pretend to be one, you know, for all day and all night. I don't care. But I would guess that that with that large mouth full of teeth, there's still some predatory instinct or at least uh, a need to have some sort of predatory uh, offensive moves to get through life. That's my guess on that. I think that's absolutely true, but I mean, sharks are also scavengers. Often, you know, when a when a whale fall, you know, when a whale dies and falls to the ocean floor, you know, you have all these little creatures come in and eat it first. But then eventually, the sharks find it, and the sharks really are what take takes care of the bulk of dead creatures on the seafloor. So it's totally reasonable for an animal like a T Rex to be a scavenger because they just want to eat, you know, and if they come across a dead uh, br- uh, brontosaurus, they're going to do it. Or uh, actually, well, a dead tri- triceratops. They were actually alive at the same time. Well, I will say, you, you know, you find something and you want to eat it. Then I know that that's near and dear to your heart. Do you think you have T-Rex DNA flowing through your body? I was going to say, Dan, I, I might, because as, as you're referring to, my motto in grad school is never turn down free food because you don't know when you'll be without. Um, and I have to admit, all the food I ate was dead food. So there is that scavenger instinct in me. Um, I'm not sure I've ever hunted anything in my life. Um, but yeah, so it's an interesting concept of just, you know, that f- made me realize there's that fine line between scavenger and predator, right? Um, and, you know, really, as a predator, you may just be like, cool. I don't have to do any work. Here it is. I'll eat it. I mean, wolves made that quick transition. Wolves as a pack were were predators. You know, the household dog is a scavenger. I mean, it's a pretty easy switch to make, I think. Yeah. Well, and you also see it in, say, the African big cats where, you know, they'll certainly eat, uh, they will eat dead stuff, but they'll also often go after the slow and infirm and sick animals too. So maybe the T-Rexes just picked off, you know, the the dying triceratopses and didn't go for the, you know, the young sprightly ones. <laughs> I think that's definitely the key to a predator. They don't, they still want an easy meal. You don't want to, you know, you're not trying to impress anybody in the animal kingdom, really. You just want to eat. You know, the, the impressive part is bringing back the food. Um, but speaking of bringing back food, what you don't want is a T-Rex bringing back human beings for their meal inside their paddock. And so when you're designing this park, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, the design, it's, you know, it's on Isla Nubar. You know, we, we discussed that already. It's an island 
island. That's what Isla means, I think. Uh, it's an island. <laughs> and, and I immediately thought of two things. This, the San Diego Safari Park, which has a setup that's very similar to Jurassic Park with modern animals, obviously. But also Alcatraz being a place to contain dangerous people, which is both protected by the water around it and the containment units in there. I think Jurassic Park has some of these elements. But one of the things I want to talk about is would the 10,000 volts be enough to to kind of to keep not necessarily keep a, a dinosaur in but to dissuade it from walking into that fence would it feel it is what i'm saying and ben i think you got an answer to that yeah i i think it would be plenty so you know ostriches which are pretty similar to dinosaurs in terms of their their body structure right they, they're they're birds they're big birds you know ostriches when you use electric fencing for those those are seven th- seven kilovolt uh fences so, you know, a little bigger, maybe, you know, you want a little bit more voltage to get all the way to the ground because you got the longer legs. But I think 10,000 volts would be plenty, especially since you don't have the feathers as an insulator and you're just uh, going on the bare skin there with the dinosaurs. And I do think the goal here really is just to shock them enough that they walk the other way. Yeah. Right. So you're really you're not trying to kill them because that's kind of bad for the zoo. You then have to make a new animal and you probably don't even want to injure them too much. So it's the electric fence design, I think, is really splitting hairs in that fine line between scaring them and um, causing damage, Dan. So it's, it's a tricky thing to design. But I like the ostrich example. So I'm going to support Ben in this one. Well, it's kind of like electric barbed wire. Um, you know, not to sneak in another shameless plug here, but I did a fascinating nouns episode on the history of barbed wire, which helped settle the West. And the idea behind barbed wire was just to make the livestock not want to go through the fence. A cow could easily, you know, a whole herd could easily go trampling right through the barbed wire fence, but they don't want to because it hurts a lot. And that's really all you have to do is tell the T-Rex, hey, this hurts. We don't want you to go blasting through there. Um, but before we finish on this, there's one moment that I loved in this movie is where there's a kid who's climbing up this big large, you know, this big fence, and then the power comes on, and he gets blasted off with about 10,000 volts. This almost happened to you, Ben, I believe, um, when you almost shocked yourself with standing on, um, putting together a lamp, I believe. Did this bring back, did you need a trigger warning when watching this? Did this bring back any PTSD or anything? Well, it brings back PTSD in the getting shocked part, but it doesn't in the sense that the kid wouldn't get shocked at all. You know, little little Timmy here isn't going to get hurt at all because he's not making a circuit. You know, that entire fence is all connected with metal. You know, it would all be at 10,000 volts when it goes up. So he might feel a, a slight stack electricity shock as the fence charged up, but probably not because there's a lot of capacitance. It probably charges up pretty slowly. So in reality, he would just get charged up to 10,000 volts um, and then he'd have to jump. The only danger is if he would were to touch the fence and the ground at the same time and complete the circuit. <laughs> then dead, right? <laughs> uh, it depends. It depends on what path the electricity takes. It might just hurt a lot. Yeah, you, you got to keep the electricity from going through your heart. It's a lot like the birds. They're very safe standing on wires. I know there's insulation, but even if the insulation breaks, the birds are okay, which is kind of one of the cool things about electricity. The other funny thing about it, though, is if he did complete the circuit and he's getting shocked, and Ben can correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is it causes everything to contract and you actually tend to hold onto the fence more. It doesn't cause you to go flying off the fence. So it just gets from bad to worse if you're completing the circuit. Yeah, you're definitely not going to fly like that. Uh, Whether or not you get stuck or not will depend on whether it's AC or DC. If it's DC, you'll contract and kind of rigid up. Whereas if it's an AC fence, you'll kind of shake with the frequency of the AC electricity. 
So what you're saying, Ben, is you got to time your jump on one of those free, you know, oscillations where you've let go. Exactly. Um, so that you don't stay there and keep shaking. Yeah. It becomes a timing yeah, problem. Yeah, that, that's six, 60 cycles a second. You know, it's, it's very precise timing. Well, I do love that it does show that when Dr. Grant fools them by shaking his arms like he's the ultimate warrior who just came down to the ring, people who know wrestling will love that reference. When he does that, that is accurate to AC power then, and that makes it important to me. And since we've covered that, I think we've covered everything. But if we haven't, you know... This is our errors, additions, and omissions section, things we want to talk about, but we didn't quite get to. I just got to the Ultimate Warrior, which I love that. I can tick that one off my list. But then what about you? Did you have anything from Jurassic Park that we didn't quite cover? So it's interesting, Dan, for this episode. I think we covered everything in Jurassic Park I like. Um, I will make one reference. The drop of water rolling off a hand that um, Dr. Malcolm uses, great example of chaos. So I love that one. But I actually have um, two things from a comment Ben made and a comment you made, uh, Dan. So Ben Open, talking about the um, large fauna, reminded me that I always get confused by the words fauna and flora because I immediately pictured plants, and he obviously meant animals. So my brain just does not work with those words. You use flora later in the episode, and I was picturing animals walking around. So that's my own error, um, a confusion. And I do wonder a little bit about you, Dan. At one point, you made the statement, we, and then you clarified that you meant humans. I'm not sure what the other we was. So I'm, I'm wondering what we are you a part of that's not humans? Just, just a question. I'm just throwing it out there to the universe. Well, hold on a second there, Denon. I will tell you that... Um I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let the people decide. Uh, but I will tell you, if you want to know flora, think of flora, think of flower, right? I mean, that's that's kind of how I do it in my head really quickly. I don't know if that helps you or not, but it's a way that flora and fauna, since we use those very often in everyday life, I wouldn't want you to get confused at a dinner party, tenant. But that might be a quick way to do it. Um, ben, what about you, fellow alien? Uh, did you have anything from this episode that you did that we did not get to? You know, I, I, I briefly mentioned it with the mosquitoes being, you know, 100 million years old. But I really just like to think about you know, they talk about this, these animals are coming into a world they don't recognize, but these animals wouldn't even recognize each other. Other than the Triceratops and the T-Rex, none of these animals actually lived at the same time. And some of them were separated by enormous amounts of time. You know, T-Rexes went extinct 65 million years ago, but the Dilophosaurus, the spitting dinosaur, uh, it went extinct 190 million years ago. The Dilophosaurus would be stranger to the T-Rex than we are to the T-Rex. You know, dinosaurs were around for 200 million years. And to think that you can compress that entire time into a single ecological preserve is just kind of crazy. <laughs> even crazier than the, even crazier than everything else we talked about. That is just the icing on the cake. And I want to mention, you know, part of that article that I mentioned before about the T Rex in the North America. They said that there were 2.5 billion T Rexes across the entire 2.5 billion years they were around, which is roughly one a year. I don't really understand how that math works, but I thought that that was kind of odd. Um, I do have one correction I need to make. In a previous episode, I talked about the platypus um, as not being venomous that we didn't know. It turns out of course we do. They have a venom sac that, that is tied into that spur. So when they hit you, you are getting hit with venom. I, for some reason, was thinking of the manta ray, which is also venomous. So I'm, I'm just correcting a mistake by replacing it with another mistake. But that's because also on the stinger of a manta ray, there is some bacteria which can get involved in if you get stung by a manta ray as well. That's a quick correction. And the other thing, those dino droppings, were those accurate? Those were roughly the size of that triceratops head. That's a lot of 
feces. Uh, I don't know what those dinosaurs were eating, but they were definitely getting their fill, um, definitely more than two goats a day because that, that pile was gigantic. Um, and the last thing is I loved the shaving cream that Nedry, the shaving cream can that Nedry uses to steal all of those embryos. And then we see it covered in slime and, and dirt and mud at the end of the movie, which would signal a sequel. I mean, it gets its own like 30 second uh, montage there as we watch it roll down the hill. They didn't do anything with it, at least that I know of. What's going on there? You're missing an opportunity. Uh, that was one of the questions that really plagued my youth, and we still don't have an answer to it. Um, dang it. Come up with an answer because I'm going crazy over here. Um, but, you know, if, if we've missed anything else, I think we've kind of covered it. But you can always get in touch with us on social media. You can find the show on Twitter at FGGBTPod or on Facebook at FGGBT. But you can get in touch with us individually. Dennett, where can people find you? Well, people can find me, Dan, on Twitter and Instagram just by flipping my name. It's at Denon Michael. And then on Facebook, you have to stick in a prof at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at B Seepser. Well, how do you spell that? B S I E P S E R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. So remember, this podcast contains powerful scientific information that should not be abused. You don't want to end up creating a Jurassic Park of your own and being a supervillain. You want to be like Dr. Grant and be a superhero. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.